You're listening to Third Opinion MD. I'm your host, Barbara Delatore. I'm a physician and artist with a mission to show you how to navigate through the existing healthcare system, introduce you to new ways of thinking about taking care of yourself, about listening to your inner doctor, and forming your own third opinion. In this season, we're going through understanding what integrated medicine can look like from the inside out. And in this episode, I am delighted to be interviewing a woman who has taken Eastern and Western medicine and blended them in a beautiful way when it comes to treating trauma. I think of acupuncture's core value is in seeking and building essential regulation. It's really about balance and regulation and balance between these two opposing forces that the Chinese called yin and yang. One turns into the other, just like the back of the hand and the front of the hand are connected to each other. Day turns into night, night turns into day, they transform into each other. Traumatic stress is essentially a state where there's profound dysregulation in the body. Often there's both too much arousal and at the same time, recently followed by too much collapse. One will be dominant, but the other will be in the background and acupuncture becomes this fabulously appropriate approach to helping trauma survivors find regulation and balance which is mostly what they're craving. Elaine Duncan is a licensed acupuncturist. She is a somatic experiencing practitioner and a very gifted educator. She has a unique approach to acupuncture that integrates modern understandings of the neurobiology of traumatic stress with ancient healing principles from Chinese medicine. She co-authored the book called The Tao of Trauma, a practitioner's guide for integrating five element theory and trauma treatment. You can purchase the book through the resource section of my website, on the show notes, or wherever you buy books online. It is my honor to have you on the show today. Thank you. First of all, I want to share with you something. I'll also disclose to the audience that I took your course, but it's not how I first knew about you. Hmm. When I was still in corporate medicine, and this was in 2019, right after your book was published, I discovered your book. Uh I bought it. And I even brought it with me. I was going through a lot of stress and I knew I needed to leave corporate medicine. I had the book in my hand and I asked someone about whether they'd heard of this book or not, or they heard of you. And they said, oh no, not really. Three years later, I was looking at my emails and sometimes I get things that I will glance at and delete, but your course came up and I had no time to take your class. But let me tell you, I shuffled and I... I rearranged. You were on my reading list for this year. I said, well, I guess I better read it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm almost done with your book, but I couldn't wait to get you on my show. And what you teach is so valuable. And I knew that when I signed up for your course, I was not going to be the same person. That's what I want you to know right now. And it's true. Wow. Wow. What's different? How are you not the same person? I am, I think I'm connecting the dots. And I realized that my lens was a little bit foggy with trauma, even though I have actually been the go-to person in clinics for the, quote, difficult patient to see me. We know what that means. It means a patient who hasn't been heard. When I dealt with patients who had emotional, physical, or sexual trauma, I could work with them. Mm -hmm. 
and I have background in psychiatry. I didn't finish the residency because I changed to family medicine. I studied acupuncture. I am an immigrant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm an artist. And so I've lived in different communities mm -hmm. to understand trauma. Mm -hmm. And yet I take your class and it was like, you know, in the movies where the person's doing detective work and suddenly a flood of images comes in and you're just like, aha. So I'm not the same person anymore because I went through probably about two or three weeks after I took your class, mourning. It was a mourning process, but in a really good way, sort of a death of who I was before and a birth of who I am now. Wow. So it's very profound. Well, that's very touching to hear. Yeah. I really mean it, that there is such gratitude for what you do in this world that you have now sort of given me another tool for my toolbox to help more people. And my mission is very big. A lot of people would ask me, really, is that possible? And I said, of course, one step at a time. Of course it is. Yeah. yeah. So thank you. Well, I've become quite convinced that the dynamics of trauma and the healing of trauma are really fundamental to the polarization we're experiencing in our society, to the mitigation of the inflammation response that we're finding not only in our healthcare and our physical bodies, but also in our social relationships, in our global climate experience, in uh, the nature of war and peace that healers have a very important role to play in creating the world that we all really want to live in. And the door is through this integration of East meets West and trauma physiology and, and the various treatment approaches that emerge out of that integration. Let's just start from the beginning. Why sure. do you work with trauma? How did you get to this place in your life? How did that land? Yeah. In 2003 or four, somewhere around there, I was listening to the radio in the car. The parents of Lance Corporal Jeffrey Lucy were being interviewed. He had been in Fallujah, came home and had the most loving parents. Dad was a nurse, mom was a social worker, very attentive, caring, loving parents. But the VA kind of failed him and he couldn't live with what he'd seen and what he'd been asked to do. And he committed suicide in their basement. I heard these parents and my own children were about the same age as Jeff was at the time. And I just thought acupuncture could have made a difference for this young man and could make a difference for this family. We have to do something. And at the time I was really rather naive. I thought that I could make a difference you know, you know, in, the, in the direction of the war. And then, you know, 20 years later, we just put out the ripples that we can put out and, and we can't always control the, the direction or, or who they touch or why. That was the beginning. I knew that I didn't know much about military culture, and I knew that I didn't know much about trauma, although I'd been in practice for 15 years by then. So I brought the Somatic Experiencing Trauma Institute to Silver Spring, Maryland, where I was working, to train clinicians in how to work with trauma. And they were insightful enough that they were willing to train mental health providers as well as body workers and acupuncturists. They were the only group that was training acupuncturists and body workers as well as mental health people. So they had the insight that trauma doesn't only affect the mind, it also affects the body and it has a powerful impact on physiology. Very early in the training and they described the sympathetic nervous system as, as arousal and the parasympathetic nervous system as 
restoration or is quiet. And I said, well, that sounds an awful lot like yin and yang. <laughs> like this description of neurophysiology is actually runs distinctly parallel to what I understand as an acupuncturist. Now let's, let's go, let's stop there for just a minute and kind of go over some of these concepts because that's a lot mm -hmm. uh, and they're all important. One is the idea that acupuncture can help someone with trauma. One of the things that I find in this country is that acupuncture, because it's had such difficulty integrating into the medical landscape, mm -hmm. into the mainstream, mm -hmm. people really don't understand its full potential. Chinese medicine has made its way into other countries mm -hmm. where it's evolved and changed and flourished in different and unique ways. Absolutely. Acupuncture is just one branch in Chinese medicine. People, they have so little understanding of the concepts of Chinese medicine that they think acupuncture is just for pain because it reflects what insurance covers. That's right. Pain or nausea in pregnancy that it, quote, works for. Mm -hmm. However, in Western medicine, there is such a... I would say Aristotle point of view where A and non-A cannot exist together. Again, that's a very deeply ingrained philosophy in Western medicine, whereas Eastern medicine has this circular view where A and not A exist at the same time. They inform each other. Mm -hmm. They can't exist without each other. Mm -hmm. More of a quantum kind of right. concept with the fact that it's circular and mind, body, spirit are connected and we have to look at people's whole person, mm -hmm. now it gets very interesting. Yes. How can acupuncture help? Yeah. I think of acupuncture's core value is in seeking and building essential regulation. It's really about balance and regulation and balance between these two opposing forces that the Chinese called yin or the dark, the quiet, the feminine, and yang, or the active and the assertive and the bright and the light and the masculine. One turns into the other, just like the back of the hand and the front of the hand are connected to each other. Day turns into night, night turns into day, they transform into each other. Traumatic stress is essentially a state where there's profound dysregulation in the body. Often there's both too much arousal and at the same time, recently followed by too much collapse. One will be dominant, but the other will be in the background. And acupuncture becomes this fabulously appropriate approach to helping trauma survivors find regulation and balance, which is mostly what they're craving. If we look at Taoist principles, which Chinese medicine has Taoist, Confucianist, and some Buddhist principles ingrained. One of the most beautiful things, and you mentioned this in your book, is the law of yin and yang mm -hmm. and the law of the Tao. That's right. The idea that um, very loosely translated, the Tao is sort of the way things are, mm -hmm. the way of the universe, the way of nature. Mm -hmm. And we're not looking at this from a religious point of view, but just sort of from, if you would think of Chinese medicine, one way of understanding it is 5,000 years of keen observation and writing things down. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think the other thing about the Tao that's um, important to mention is that it's the impulse out of which life emerged. So it's a little bit like the Big Bang, you know, but what, what it means is that everything is related because everything emerges out of the same impulse. A human's experience of life is related to an animal's experience of life, is related to the rocks that make up the mountain and the water that runs down the side of the mountain and the tree that grows. We're related to all these essential elements of nature. We're part of them. They are part of us. We can look to nature and the Tao as a wise sage. 
to help us as we navigate our experiences through the agricultural cycle, through the, the seasons of our lives, as well as the seasons of our year and our days. So the yin and yang is a duality, but not exclusive duality. It's an understanding of a relationship of opposites That's right. and how they are dependent upon each other. They are a part of each other. Mm-hmm. They influence each other. That's right. I have an article on my website that I encourage people to look at. It explains the principles of yin and yang if you're not familiar with it. Mm-hmm. Almost like when I took your course, when you start to read about yin and yang, you will not look at things the same way. I mean, <laughs> exactly. you just don't. Yeah, It's a very caring way of dealing with changes in life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If they're wonderful or if they're extremely challenging, right. it's a great way to look at it. The other is the five elements. Mm-hmm. These are the two things that are so fundamental to understanding Chinese medicine and how it works. So not just acupuncture, but any type of energetic medicine in Chinese medicine, Qigong. These Taoist sages from three, 4,000 years ago, they were uh, keen observers, as you said. And they looked at the movement through the agricultural cycle and divided it into five slices of a circular pie. They named those five phases after five elements, the metal, the water, the wood, the fire, and the earth. And they said that as we go through the cycle of the year, the cycle of growth in the agricultural cycle, that the more that we can align ourselves with the impulses of those five elements, the healthier we'll be. In the wintertime, the alignment of nature is to be quiet and deep and dark and restful. And in the summertime, The law of nature says, be joyful, be in connection, be in laughter, be in play, be in your fullness. We can heal. And then there are organs associated with each of those five elements. And there are emotions associated with each of them and spiritual qualities and spiritual tasks and and tissues of the body. And we can heal these different aspects of ourselves in their own season by paying attention and aligning ourselves with the energy of that particular season. Exactly. Let's take a look at the season that we're in now at the time of this recording, spring. Yes, absolutely. Spring is the time where you plant the seeds for harvesting in the fall. Mm -hmm. For example, what you do to your body, what you do with your thinking, Mm -hmm. what you do with your planning Mm -hmm. will then bear fruit Mm -hmm. later on whether it's good for you or not good for you. Mm -hmm. Either rotten fruit or fruit that you can harvest and eat. But springtime also has organ, like you said, associated with it would be the liver. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about organs, we're talking about not just the organ, but what we call meridians or channels through which chi moves. Mm -hmm. And chi is sort of this difficult to translate, but that life force energy that is so important for it to move smoothly in the body, with blood, with the circulation, Mm -hmm. how we eat, Mm -hmm. how we breathe, how we think, all of that is chi. Mm -hmm. Yep. If the chi flows, we're healthy. Like you said, if we live with the seasons, if our little ecosystem adapts with the flow of the ecosystem around us, that includes people, environment, Mm -hmm. animals, nature, then we're healthy. In the springtime, we have liver and the associated emotion, negative emotion would be anger. Mm -hmm. Sometimes intense anxiety, too. Mm -hmm. The anger is the primary. You and I, as practitioners, tend to see sort of the the typical symptoms that come up in the spring. Headaches, dizziness, vertigo, 
anger. And gosh, we're seeing a lot of that right now. Actually, I think our whole world is in a state of high sympathetic arousal that creates a lot of inflammation. Um, Mm. You know, we've got war in Ukraine. We've got global warming. We've got threats to racial justice. We've got all kinds of stuff happening. And I think that in my integrative framework, the wood element also belongs to the sympathetic nervous system in Western terms, which is also the mobilization response, the fight or flight response. The other aspect of the wood element that people sometimes forget in the midst of thinking about it as representing anger is that it also represents benevolence. When you think about the trees in the Amazon that are producing oxygen for the whole world to use to, to breathe and create, thereby create chi, the, the benevolence of the forest is, is very clear. The other dimension of its benevolence is that it's always on. It's always available to us. We don't have to go seek out our sympathetic nervous system. If we feel threatened, it will become available to us immediately, absolutely immediately. The problem becomes if we don't have adequate parasympathetic system, if we don't have adequate break on our sympathetic system, we won't know how to live in community with other people because we'll just be cranky all the time. We'll be angry and frustrated and full of rage and we'll knock down doors instead of checking the handle to see if we can just open it. The pandemic has resulted in so much social isolation that we haven't kind of tickled or nurtured or, or cultivated that parasympathetic ventral vagal function in the same way as we might have otherwise. And I think it's put us in a more brittle state as a world's people with regard to our sympathetic arousal and our inadequate capacity to temper that arousal through relationship, through understanding and the dynamics of relationship. Let's now go over what you're referring to is polyvagal theory, Mm -hmm. the autonomic nervous system and how we understood it before and now through this wonderful, more recent theory, how we can now understand ourselves better as humans and with issues of trauma and complex trauma. Would you mind going over that? Yeah, sure. This fellow named Stephen Porges is the developer of polyvagal theory. He's a psychologist and a research scientist. And what he says is that instead of two branches of our autonomic nervous system, sympathetic and parasympathetic, that our parasympathetic system actually has two branches within it. The ventral vagus nerve or the social break on the sympathetic and the dorsal vagus nerve or the freeze or the more primitive break on the sympathetic arousal. I think one of the things that people know is that fight or flight, they know that. They know fight or flight. They know that either we're feeling really calm or we're feeling nervous, but most people don't know that the parasympathetic nervous system are the breaks that we need for that active sympathetic nervous system that's always on. Yeah. When we experience a sense of threat, say we're we're just walking down the street and we see someone who we think we don't trust. If our parasympathetic nervous system, if our ventral vagus nerve is fully functional, we will have curiosity about that person rather than conclusion. We'll be able to distinguish our discomfort about someone new from our fear about they might be a threat. If our capacity for curiosity and relationship has been thwarted along the way, and we are mistrustful of this person, the next step would be to use our sympathetic system, which is 
either we're going to run away from them, we're going to bolt down the street and to protect ourselves, or we're going to clobber them over the head. The most important tool that human beings have and other creatures that have a limbic system in their brain is our parasympathetic ventral vagus social engagement system. It's what allows us to live in community with the capacity to distinguish discomfort from fear. So we're gonna use ventral vagus first. If that doesn't work, we'll use sympathetic. But if our sympathetic system also fails, if we can't run fast enough to evade this saber-toothed tiger, we will eventually collapse because the impulse to run faster is requiring our heart to beat so very fast that it ultimately will cause a heart attack if we don't slow it down. We have to slow it down in order to save our life. Stephen Porges talks about these three systems as neurologic platforms that we move between. They're all there to save our life. We will move to the dorsal vagus, which is this powerful freeze or powerful break on the, on the arousal in the heart in order to protect us. We're on the side of a mountain and a, a rock has fallen on our leg. We're gonna shout for help. We're gonna use our ventral vagus first. After that doesn't work, we're gonna push and push and push as hard as we can with our sympathetic system. When we realize we can't do that anymore, we're gonna go unconscious. And that's gonna protect our core vitality. We're gonna save a little bit of our energy for our healing later. Not moving makes us less interesting to the predators in the mountain that they're gonna be less interested in eating us. And it's gonna give us some endorphins that help us not feel pain. When a group of burly hikers come along and are able to move that rock and carry us off the mountain, we have a little bit of chi left to help us with the healing and the recovery that needs to happen. And if they're kind, if those burly hikers that came to protect us, if they're kind, if they touch us in tender ways and caring ways, they aren't too anxious and frightened themselves, it will actually help cultivate that ventral vagal capacity that will allow us more opportunity to heal. It will help us heal if we're met with that kind of caring, parasympathetic, ventral vagal, social engagement, energetic. Now, here's what's interesting, and this is something that you teach in your classes and, and you mention in your book, is that the ventral vagus is something that has to be cultivated That's right. in our life, especially in our childhood. That's right up to young adulthood. Yep. Boy, that really explains probably why not everybody's walking around with a cultivated ventral vagus. We have enough ventral vagus when we're born to suckle, to find the breast and to suckle. But until the first six months of life, the first year of life, the first five years of life, and then as you say, into adolescence, we continue to cultivate it. And we cultivate it in experiences of being met by a loving caregiver who goos and coos at us, who responds when we cry because we have a wet diaper or we're hungry, who recognizes us as a distinct other and, and loves us with eyes that make good eye contact and, and all of that. And if we receive that, our body is going to learn how to digest food. The heart is going to learn how to regulate various systems of the body. We're going to do well. But if we don't get that capacity built or we don't have an external ventral vagus, to help us regulate experiences of arousal when we're an infant, then we're going to rely on that dorsal vagal, that freeze response, to mitigate the arousal in our heart. And when that happens, 
not only is our heart slowed down, but the peristalsis in our guts gets compromised. So then as an adult, we're going to be more challenged to transform food into blood and energy. And so we're going to be likely to gain weight around the middle. It's one of the key underpinnings of obesity is early developmental pre and perinatal trauma. We're going to have trouble maybe with autoimmune illness because the T cells are produced in the gut by the gut biome and, and that's been compromised. We may have mental health issues because the serotonin and other neurotransmitters are produced in the gut that affect our mind and our capacity to be happy and regulated with our thinking. We're going to be more likely to have pain patterns, to have struggle with addictions, with relationships, all kinds of stuff. And all of this is documented very clearly in the adverse childhood experiences uh, research that's now housed at the Centers for Disease Control here in the United States. And that was conducted in the late 90s, correct? Mm -hmm. Originally? Yeah, it started at a weight loss clinic in California, in Southern California. People would come in and they would lose 50 and 100 and 150 pounds, and then they would gain it back. The physician who was running that study was a good enough scientist that he sat down and he talked to people and asked them what it was all about. And they developed this questionnaire and did the research and found almost universal experiences, multiple experiences of trauma, like losing a parent, sexual abuse, violence in the home, drug addiction in the home, all those kinds of things that gave an experience of um, terror to an infant who didn't have capacity to self-soothe. And this is not just affecting people maybe even born into a family that's very loving, but if there's any unresolved transgenerational trauma going back a few generations, that can also affect us through the genes. Like a child who has to have a surgery or a child who, who's born premature, loving parents, but has to spend time in an incubator and doesn't get the touch that it needs. The issue of epigenetics that you bring up is quite a fascinating one. There's been research in Holland after the what they call the, the Dutch hunger winter in World War II when women had inadequate food during their pregnancies, the impact not only on their child, but also on their child's child. It continued through a couple of generations. There's also a lot of research in Israel with Holocaust survivors, with survivors of the World Trade Center here in the United States, showing that the impact of traumatic stress gets stored in genetic tissue that can then communicate similar dysregulation to children and grandchildren. I was just in a class last weekend and someone was referring to their husband, his ancestors had survived the pogroms in Russia. And as a three-year-old, he would hide a salami in his sock drawer because that impulse to need to have food stored away was in his tissues. So he had salamis in his underwear drawer. What was that, if you could summarize, what was that incident in history? The pogroms, the, the, yes. the attacks on Jewish people in, uh, in Russia. Was that during the time of Stalin? Yes, it was during the time of Stalin, yeah. Even just looking back at my own history, I just think, wow. <laughs> I mean, we are all really affected. Right. But the good thing to know, the important thing to know, because it, this can get to feel so dire, there's also research on resilience. And what they've found is like a child who's maybe has generations and generations of traumatic stress behind them, that if they experience enhanced resiliency activities, 
good attention and stimulating educational games and people who love and care for them, they will turn that experience of trauma into expanded resiliency. The lessons from that experience in the ancestors become warnings and guidance to help you cope with today. The more that we can provide children with loving attention, the more we're going to be able to transform these impacts of the horrible things that human beings have done to each other through the centuries into expanded capacity to to manage and navigate and create the world that we want to live in. The ACE study that we were talking about, Adverse Childhood Experience Study, where it was, I believe, 17,000 participants in that study, you were mentioning they found that it affects multiple systems in our body, Mm -hmm. which is why I believe these patients are sometimes labeled as difficult patients because we can't peg them for one system in the Western medical model. They stump acupuncturists too because they don't fall into those patterns that they learn in their system. And that's one of the ways that the lens cleared for me. I know these things are connected. I would see that, but I wouldn't see it in the books. And we just know from talking to these guys. Yeah, that's because Western medicine and even acupuncturists are too often guided towards fixing a problem. So diagnosing a certain discrete illness or or dysregulation instead of being guided towards enhancing core regulation. People end up with what I call complex multi-symptom illness in the same person. There'll be chronic migraines and autoimmune illness and irritable bowel syndrome and a pain pattern. An acupuncturist who is not trained or a physician who is not trained at holding the essential core regulation of a patient and supporting that will go first to this symptom, then to that symptom, then the other symptom. And they may help that one symptom, but because they haven't attended to the core regulation, the symptom will reappear because the problem is the dysregulation at the center. So we need to have approaches that help people find balance and regulation in order to let go of these various uh, symptoms that they are struggling with. Now share with me if I'm explaining this correctly. Mm -hmm. The idea of your core regulation or your zone of resilience Mm -hmm. is that sort of sine wave, Mm -hmm. yin-yang, bouncing up and downward in a gentle fashion, which we all have regardless of how dysregulated we are. Absolutely. And that wave exists in what I call a zone of resiliency. So it doesn't go too high and it doesn't go too low. It's got these boundaries that help contain it so that we go into summer, but we don't go into 120 degrees. We go into winter, but we don't collapse into the Arctic. We flow between these two states that are held in some form of tension and keeps keeps us regulated. It's this wonderful new language that you've offered for me to share, because I remember telling patients the ones that would say, what's going on? I said, well, there's the you that just needs to be freed the way Michelangelo would talk about freeing the, the sculpture from the marble. That's right. That there's this sacredness and this balance in a person. Mm-hmm. And I would often try to look for that healthy person within someone. Absolutely. Like, I know you're in there. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> you studied acupuncture, then you started to focus on trauma. And then you, with this zone of regulation, one of the things you talked about was the importance of bringing the body back Mm -hmm. into the healing work. Right. This is very curious. (laughs) Neuroscientists have defined five steps in our self-protective response, five steps that predator-prey animals, including human beings, go through as they navigate a life-threatening or dangerous situation. 
those five steps are mirrored in the five elements of Chinese medicine. And my core thesis is that it follows along with the somatic experiencing work that was developed by Peter Levine, that if we make it through all those five steps successfully, there won't be any residue from the trauma that remains behind in our tissues. But usually it's one of those steps, sometimes more than one, gets thwarted along the way that we will have a need to complete that step in order to find our healing. And the overlay of Chinese medicine with those five steps means that, to use the example of the wood element that we were talking about earlier, if we were thwarted in our mobilization response, there are resonant tissues and resonant organs associated with the wood element where we can kind of look in and see, I wonder if you're there, <laughs> thwarted mobilization response. That would be the tendons and the ligaments are the associated tissue. The eyes are the associated sense organ. The blood is the associated fluid. We can use touch techniques and needles and food and exercise and herbs and Qigong and Tai Chi and all these different, what I call energy medicine approaches with a focus on the tendons and the ligaments and the eyes and the blood and, and so forth to find where that body is storing the incomplete response, incomplete mobilization response so that it can be released and we can move through the, the whole cycle of the five elements. The animals in the wild don't get thwarted. They complete those five steps. Either the bunny rabbit completes the five steps, you know, runs away from the fox. And if it doesn't successfully complete them, it becomes lunch for the fox. The rabbit takes time after successfully running away to say, well, I don't hear the fox. I don't smell the fox. I don't see the fox. I must be safe. So the conclusion I must be safe comes from an organic embodied experience of safety. Whereas humans, we've got this big neocortex that tends to override our sensations. We trip and fall down some stairs and we don't even take time to notice that we didn't break a leg and we're standing up and, and running away and hoping nobody sees us. Well, we would do so much better if we would let our senses tell us, I'm all here, I'm all intact, I didn't hurt anything, I got a little bruise here, let me just hold it a little bit and give it a little pat. Somebody comes along, offers you some water, take it, say thank you. You know, you know. Oh my gosh, you've just opened up a whole box here yeah. <laughs> of uh, layers of what we're dealing with in society, locally, right. nationally, globally. That's right. And I would say it's not the sole contributor, but the fact that we're automating so many things, mm -hmm. we're relying on other things taking care of what our senses should be doing. That's right. yeah. And on top of it, we're two years in isolation really compromised really, us. Really compromised us. You had worked with the military for about 10 years, yeah. is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you work with civilians now or, or a variety of groups? I guess probably primarily with civilians. Actually, what I'm doing most primarily is teaching now. And there are some military people in my classes and as well as civilians. Probably the 10 years that were the most meaningful in my clinical practice were the 10 years I spent working at the DC Veterans Administration Medical Center, where I helped establish the Integrative Health and Wellness Service, treated hundreds of veterans. And I think the biggest thing was coming into relationship with people who I had seen as other previously, finding a sense of a oneness with them and love for them and appreciation for the sense of comradeship and connection that they have for each other in a way that no civilian 
will ever experience, the, the quality of care and connection that a military unit who gets deployed together will experience with each other. It's not the same, but I, I see that in healthcare workers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A similar vein where if you haven't been there, it's hard to understand. Mm-hmm. Doctors may not share a lot about what's going on with them. And I, I speak about Western mm-hmm. medical doctors, but I'm sure this may be the case also for for other practitioners as well. I think any time where there's a, a system where people rely on each other, like in a, in a complex, say, a critical care unit of a hospital where you're relying on each other to help get this person with advanced COVID who needs to be on a ventilator and has cardiac myopathy and, you know, all kinds of stuff going on. And there's a whole team of people working together. There's a quality of we're relying on each other. We're a team. We're all in this together. That creates a bond that's pretty irreplaceable. One of the things that I'm going over in some of the episodes is medical training and Mm -hmm. traumatic experiences that happen with the training itself. Right. Sleep deprivation. Sleep deprivation. (laughs) Well, abuse. Mm-hmm. verbal, emotional abuse, a hierarchical system that's actually loosely based on military hierarchy, except that it's not a respected hierarchy. It's it's so mm-hmm. complicated. Yeah. You also have issues of gender, issues of sexual orientation, lack mm-hmm. of representation of providers for patient populations. In other words, mm-hmm. a patient goes in and, and doesn't see anyone that looks like them. Yeah they can identify with that matters on both ends of the spectrum you have patients who can be traumatized in the healthcare system re-traumatized in the healthcare system and then you have practitioners who are traumatized but they talk about it more as a rite of passage because that's just what you do Mm. even just as my mom kind of alluded Mm -hmm. to in in episode five she says you just move on you just suck it up it's right (laughs) right you in other words you cultivate a management strategy that overrides your own impulses in order to cope with the system. And you end up being damaged as a result. Would you mind sharing with us the five steps of the self-protective response, Elaine? Yeah. And I like to think of them in a layered way because we move through these five steps, but they also provide us what I think of as five capacities for navigating stressful events. Let's circle around them. Okay. We'll start with the metal element, which is the lung and the colon. And I call the function of the metal awaken arousal. So we need a capacity to notice that there's something new in our environment. So that might be something as mundane as now there's a pothole in the street that I walk on every day to work. I can't just be in the clouds. I need to notice the pothole or else I'm going to trip and break my ankle. So that capacity for mindful awareness that the meditation teachers talk about is really our first step to notice and be curious, not be in judgment or conclusion, but the capacity to be curious about what's here and what's now. Cultivating that capacity for curiosity will help us navigate a sense of danger and experience of danger. The next step I call signal threat. This belongs to the water element and the kidney and the bladder are the organs associated with the water. When the kidney experiences fear, which is the signal for threat, the kidney lifts up, gets tight and hard and lifts up, and that little adrenal gland that sits on top of the kidney gets pressed up against the diaphragm and secretes adrenaline. 
When our blood system is flooded with adrenaline, we have to experience, we can only experience profound threat or profound rage, but we can only be dysregulated in that way. The signal threat is the task of the kidney. It gives us the capacity to distinguish discomfort from fear. I think the best example of someone who didn't make that distinction were the murderers of Ahmad Arbery, where they saw a black man running through their neighborhood and they assumed fear and were unable to notice that they were uncomfortable and that the problem was their discomfort, not that Ahmad Arbery was a source of fear. So I think of, of this particular capacity as being a critical one for safety in our neighborhoods and safety in, in terms of domestic violence and in terms of all kinds of things is people's capacity to notice I'm uncomfortable and then take care of their discomfort instead of lobbing their discomfort onto someone else and taking it out on them and naming it as, as fear. And then knowing that the discomfort and feeling safe can coexist. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm uncomfortable, but I'm not in danger. That's an important thing to be able to be aware of. The next step is the mobilization response. And the important thing or the capacity that the wood element gives us with our mobilization is the capacity for our mobilization to be commensurate with the level of threat. In other words, if we need a fly swatter, we use a fly swatter. We don't use um, a 12 gauge. <laughs> we, 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 if we're angry with our child for running out into the street, we scoop them up in a vigorous way, but we don't need to beat the crap out of them. Our mobilization needs to be commensurate with the level of threat. This is how we will use that capacity well and stay in community. Is this taught for parenting classes? My goal is to teach this stuff to enough people that someone in every domain of life will carry this information into those domains. Such valuable information. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. The fire element is next. And when the water experiences this profound fear and signals threat, it sends that message to the fire element. And the first impulse of the fire is to create relationship. Like, I feel threatened. Who's here to help me? Can I capture the eyes of the driver that looks like he's going too fast and is going to run me over? Can I catch their eyes and help them realize this is a human being who's crossing the road? Can I seek out my neighbors when there's an issue in the community so that we can come together to resolve it? Can I, can I make relationship? If we're unable to make relationship because we've experienced relationship-based threat in the past and our capacity to trust people has been compromised, we won't be able to make those kind of social engagement initiatives to protect ourselves. And instead, we will go into high arousal. Our heart will send out with the heartbeat, with the pulse, a very high and pounding message to the entire kingdom of the body. The fire's job is to command a response. The water signals the threat and the fire commands the response in the whole kingdom of the body to take care of this life threat. That's the job of the heart is to take care of the whole body. It will continue to do that until either the wood gives the message, job complete, we're okay, at ease. Or we discover that it wasn't really a threat after all, we just thought it was a threat. Then the heart will back down. If the heart continues in that high arousal because the sense of threat continues. Sooner or later, the water is element is going to essentially throw water on the fire and stop the heart from beating so darn fast because 
we're threatening our life with high cardiac arousal. That's when the corruption of the digestion, peristalsis in the guts and the cardiac injury uh, happens. If we need to repeatedly throw that water on the heart, throw that freeze response on the activation, that's how we end up with complex multi-symptom illness. I'm going to provide as a resource that the audience can look at this five element Mm -hmm. star Mm -hmm. circle because there's two cycles going on. There's a generating cycle that moves on the perimeter of the circle in a clockwise direction. And then if it's controlling, that's like you're drawing the star in the circle. That's right. Each element has both a promoting aspect and a compromising aspect. The water promotes the wood, but it also is a job to compromise the fire, to hold it in tension. The last step I call digest the gristle. And that belongs to the earth element, whose job is to help us assimilate the lessons that are inherent in any danger or life-threatening experience. There's always a lesson in there that we could harvest so that the next time something similar happens, we actually have capacity, better capacity to manage it. The important capability within that is that we help our patients and ourselves to harvest lessons that expand our life experience rather than contract our life experience. If we harvest a lesson, I can never trust people who drive blue pickup trucks because it was a blue pickup truck that that ran the red light and hit me. What if our nephew comes home with a new blue pickup truck and wants you to admire it? All of a sudden, you're going to be at odds with your nephew who you love. We need to harvest appropriate lessons that make our life bigger and allow people to, to make mistakes and to be forgiven and And then we come back to the metal element with an enhanced capacity and enhanced sense of our own value and our own capacity and our own resilience, which is the the gift of the metal element is knowing ourselves to be a gem. So all of a sudden we're, we're a bigger gem because we have this enhanced capacity of having gone through those five steps. With generations of trauma, there was an experiment that was it with mice? Could you talk Mm -hmm. about that? It was published in Science Magazine. The article is called A Painful Legacy, Mice Hint at How People's Emotional Trauma May Affect the Biology of Their Children and Their Children's Children. It's by Andrew Curry, and it's a science magazine. What they did was they put mice, male mice, in a cage, and they simultaneously put electric shocks in the floor of the cage and pumped cherry blossom smoke into the cage while the shocks were being administered. The mice understandably came to associate the smell of cherry blossoms with being shocked. So it got so that they could not shock the mice, but just just pump in the smoke and the mice would jump and squeal and, and all of that as if they were experiencing electric shocks. Then they brought some female mice into the cage and mated them and took the male mice out. The pups that were born had never met their fathers. But when they pumped cherry blossom smoke into the cage, the pups acted as if there was an electric shock coming through the floor. Wow. They not only acted that way, they also secreted cortisol and adrenaline and other stress chemicals in a way similar to their fathers. Mice are not nearly as complex as human beings in terms of our genetics, but they reproduce faster. So it's easier to study. It at least lends some credibility to the impact of epigenetic experiences being transmitted through our genetic lineage. What they found was that seven generations of mice 
continued to experience high arousal state with the cherry blossom smoke. And then they took one generation and they gave them carpeted cages that were large. They gave them good running wheels and, and other toys to enhance their development. They had plenty of good food. They had all the things that mice like, sort of like Mouse Canyon Ranch. You know? <laughs> and in one generation, they reversed the expression of the cherry blossom smoke. Just one generation. Just one generation. I'm a little Pollyanna-ish, you know, but I think that it's really important <laughs> that we provide loving, caring, attention with good education and, and all of that to our children. I think we can make a really big difference just being a coach for the basketball team and being a leader in the scouts and directing the choir and participating in community theater and admiring the new bike that comes by and going and shooting balls in the park with the kids. All those kinds of things can make a world of difference. Yeah, and harvesting our history, our legacies. We can do that. Because there's a way to look at that instinct around cherry blossom smoke as granddad, dad, granddad, great-granddad are informing their descendant what to be afraid of, what to be suspicious of. There's a way that there's enhanced resiliency in that cherry blossom smoke, as well as obviously the cherry blossom smoke isn't really a threat. So there's a, a misjudgment about the cherry blossom smoke, but we just have to turn the wheel just a little bit. We can turn this wisdom from the ancestors into an enhanced capacity instead of a, a compromised capacity. Yeah, we can actually restore our path into a blueprint and not a fixed map that can't be changed. That's right. That's right. And the other important message, I think, from that research is that these are not life sentences. We can have experienced a horrible thing. We can have experienced a very challenging infancy and childhood, but it's not immutable. We can help people repair. Oh, I really want to see that more and more in our Western mental health approach. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons why I left psychiatry. Mm -hmm. Even though they were starting to study the plasticity of the brain, mm -hmm and the idea that we can change things, mm -hmm. they still were very fixated on PTSD being, which you and I both agree, we don't like even that term. Post-traumatic mm -hmm. stress disorder is just doing mm -hmm. disservice to complex mm -hmm. trauma. But the idea that it's permanent, it's not. Mm -hmm. But I remember I was told by my supervisors, they scoffed at that. Mm -hmm. I asked, what if? Mm -hmm. And now it's so validating to see that one generation... Mm -hmm. We can yeah. make a difference. Yeah. I prefer to think of it as a traumatic stress response and define it as too much, too fast without adequate support mm -hmm. and complex multi-symptom illness. Restoring regulation is our key initiative, our key approach. Some take-home points from this would be we can make much more profound changes than we are made to be aware of in our existing mm -hmm. system, that we have to involve the body as well as yeah. the mind Especially Absolutely. if trauma is preverbal, we have to have some type of body type therapy. Absolutely. Trauma lives in the body, not in the mind. It lives in our tissues. Yeah. It's stored in our tissues. And the mind is in all of our cells, actually. Every cell is important. Mm -hmm. now, the last thing I wanted to bring up is just what advice would you give to listeners out there who either are aware or know someone who has experienced trauma? How to approach the healthcare system because not everybody is what we would call trauma-informed. And one of the things that you do is that you teach practitioners in acupuncture to be more trauma-sensitive. Yeah, I actually work with acupuncturists and other energy-based providers. So 
there are body workers and there are mental health providers who have a somatic orientation, somatic psychotherapists who train with me as well. Energy-based medicine is something to look for. If you can't find an acupuncturist or or other person who studied Tao trauma kind of material, look for a craniosacral therapist, look for a somatic psychotherapist, look for a somatic experiencing trained therapist, look for someone who studied EMDR, the eye movement desensitization and recovery. Look for someone with a background in understanding traumatic stress, because if the people work with you with an exclusively cognitive approach, trying to help you change your mind about what happened to you, it isn't going to get you home. It's not going to get you home. You need someone who's going to work with you from the body up, not from the mind down. Wonderful. Yeah. Elaine Duncan, thank you for doing what you do. Thanks for being on this show. I want to mention a couple of things that you've done that I encourage people to look into. One is a a book that we talked about called The Tao of Trauma, A Practitioner's Guide for Integrating Five-Element Theory and Trauma Treatment by Elaine Duncan and with Kathy Kane, who's Mm -hmm. a somatic experiencing instructor. And, And this is an amazing book. Even if you just read a few parts, it's so illuminating. It explains that integration. Polyvagal theory is covered here. Also, your newsletter, I will include a link to that in the show notes. And what else are you up to this year? Yeah, I've got a pretty exciting year coming up. I'll be starting uh, my year-long five-session series of classes for providers, for acupuncturists, mental health providers, energy-based medicine people. I call it the Tao of Trauma. And we do one class in each of the five seasons of the year that covers each of the five steps of the self-protective response. So that's going to start up in the fall with cohorts in Ojai, California, and in Silver Spring, Maryland, and one online a virtual cohort. We've learned a lot of things in the past two years, and one is how to teach online. <laughs> and then in the fall, in November, at the Pacific Symposium, which is the biggest acupuncture conference in maybe in the world, but certainly in the United States. Looking forward to that as well. And You can keep up with on my website, integrativehealingworks.net, and with my newsletter, News and Views on Integrative Healing, that comes out monthly for dates and registration information. All right. Well, thank you. My pleasure. In a time of crisis, there is always an opportunity to make change, especially when we are dealing with such epidemic proportions with mental health crises across our communities, our nation. And globally, we are experiencing trauma on a massive scale. Something like post-traumatic stress disorder does not have to be permanent. By thinking beyond one system, we create hope. I'd love to hear from you. Please send me your comments, questions, or suggestions for future topics and guests you'd like to have on the show. You can find the contact form under the podcast tab at the website thirdopinionmd.org. Be sure to follow or subscribe to this podcast and submit a rating on your favorite podcast player. Third Opinion MD podcast is produced by me, Barbara Delatore. Music is licensed through Audio Jungle. Any comments made by the host or guest on Third Opinion MD reflect opinions about healthcare and self care. Please consult with your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. Thank you for listening. 